don't really expect the demand forecast to be right, do you? You shouldn't. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Here's a fun fact. Top multinational consumer products companies have a weekly forecast error averaging more than 50%. That little nugget comes from the fourth annual forecasting benchmark study of Terra Technology. Terra's CEO, Rob Byrne, is here to tell us why companies just can't seem to get it right. He talks about the constant struggle to overcome corporate silos, bias, and legacy applications. He outlines the perils they face, seasonality, alarmingly brief product life cycles, and the blowback from skew proliferation. So much for the joys of innovation. Thankfully, Rob has some solutions to the problem. He tells us how the concept of demand sensing can improve the forecast, even though companies will never, ever get it completely right. So here is my conversation with Rob Byrne. Rob Byrne, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bob. Very pleased to be here. Great to have you. Why is the forecast almost always wrong? Um, you know, there's there's a lot of complexity, and customers tend to be somewhat unpredictable. Um, and I would say also, you know, traditional approaches, which are essentially historical, not necessarily relevant to what's happening in the market right now. So a combination of the complexity of the environment out there, plus I imagine up to now the lack of certain tools that companies now have at hand to improve that, right? I mean, back back in the good old days, I mean, what was a forecast? It was a spreadsheet, right? Was that pretty much what it was and, and, and just people kind of guessing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was at Unilever 30 years ago, you know, we ran a promotion every three months on a particular product, and a month later you ran a different product every three months. It was a lot easier, right? Marketing is, uh, has gotten a lot more complex these days, um, skew proliferation. And, you know, I say, uh, I, I, you know, if I want to buy milk for the week, I can either think about how much milk I bought in this week last year, or I can look at my refrigerator, right? So, peeking into your customer supply chain can be quite informative. Do you think that companies in their eagerness to uh, innovate in their marketing and sales uh, techniques, as you say, in terms of skew proliferation and the advent of big box retailing and stuff like that, do you think they got ahead of the the technology that could support that additional complexity, at least for a while? I do. I think what we see in our benchmarking study is really a dramatic increase in the number of items Mm -hmm. You see a lot of CEOs out there saying, you know, innovation, growth through innovation. Um, but we don't actually see the follow-on. We see the items, but we don't see the volume sh- showing up. Um, so considerable additional complexity, dropping sales per item. You see a lot of retailers asking for custom items. 
Um, it's just, you know, complexity is up quite a bit in the last few years. Now, Terra Technology does a forecasting benchmark study, or you did recently. Is that an ongoing thing, or is this the first time you've done that? Uh, this is the fourth year. It's it's an annual event. Um, it's, a, it's a very, at this point, it's North America, but it's a study for um, 11 of our customers, very large uh, multinational CPG companies. What was the impetus to doing it four years ago? What made you decide to launch it? Um, some of our customers had, had were concerned they'd been, you know, most, most forecasting survey, most forecasting benchmarks are survey-based, and as a result, there's really, they're really not comparable. So we actually pull all the raw data for our customers, apply consistent metrics, and really sort of stack them up against one another. Um, so it's a mix of being able to have the data and do the measurements consistently, and also that it was a very consistent set of companies. You say 11 multinational consumer products companies, all CPG, right? All in the retailing arena? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. In those, give, give me a, a big picture of those four years as you've done this study. What are some of the, uh, the biggest trends or biggest changes that you've seen since you launched that study? I mean, certainly skew proliferation, number one. You know, items are up 23% in four years. Um, forecast air, basically flat, forecast value add, essentially flat, dipped a little bit, uh, 1%, but just consistent struggle. Weekly air averages more than 50%. I mean, you know, and that's after implementing, you know, a lot of spending a lot of money on tools and processes, um, 50%. How does that compare with the past? Like, I mean, you obviously, be, you know, you didn't have this study as a reference point for anything older than four years, but what do you get a sense in your, as you say, in your days with Unilever, my, what might be a typical forecast error back in those simpler days? Um, you know, in, in that sense, I'd, I'd say it was not much lower, maybe a little bit lower. So, you know, maybe people are treading water better than... Uh, uh, you know, in terms of overall error, but um, you know, not not certainly not improvement. I'd say the the sort of gradual deterioration um, probably is, is is kind of what's happening. What is the price that companies pay when their forecast error is so high? Is it just the need? Is it a question of keeping around enough safety stock to fill the need that's unanticipated? Is it uh, the need to expedite product and pay? paid extra money to get it to market quickly when they realize that their reality doesn't match the forecast, or is it simply just lost sales? I'd say it's all of those. It's obsolescence. I mean, even if it's not a shelf life issue, you know, so roughly a, a third of the products in the in the study are, are reinvented every year. So you have, you know, you're throwing away labels. You may be selling stuff at a discount. Um, it's it's quite expensive. I mean, the 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 eighty percent of the products fall into the bottom twenty percent of the sales, sort of the eighty twenty rule, and you're carrying two thirds more inventory on those than you are on the rest of the product. So that long tail is is just very expensive. You talk about an upswing in seasonal and transient products. What do you think is driving that? Um, again, I think it's marketing initiatives. It's, it's some of the specialized items. It's more displays, more promotions. 
um, more, you know, fighting over that last little bit of shelf space. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess when you say upswing and seasonal, too, I mean, I know that certainly Christmas has always been a big deal, but other seasons seem to be uh, much more making a splash in the merchandising area these days, like Halloween and back to school and the like. So is it that really that retailers are beginning to rely more and more heavily on those seasons for their for all of their uh, profits during the year? I would say, like, if you look just at Thanksgiving, right, so Black Friday started on Thursday at a lot of retailers. I saw it starting on Tuesday at some of them, right, and it's continuing into this week. So I think there is an evolution into, you know, uh, things being on sale and, and, and sort of the seasonal patterns expanding a bit, covering more ground, Um I was asked the other day when I when I thought it would stop, and I thought, well, who's going to be the first retailer to say, yeah, we used to open at 6 on Thanksgiving, but we're going to wait till Friday. I don't know that anyone is going to be the first to do that. I think um, somebody would get a lot of customer loyalty if they were to do that and say, just stay home and enjoy enjoy Thanksgiving with your family. But, <laughs> of course, I'm not a retailer, so I don't know how it works. But um, the idea of transient products, too, uh, does that suggest that, that uh, retailers are just less patient these days, not only do they introduce more SKUs, but they're less patient about giving those SKUs a chance to catch on, and they're more likely just to yank them if it looks like they're not successful and bring on something new? I would say yes. It, that's, it's hard to sort of know exactly why, these, uh, you know, why this is happening, but um, that seems pretty reasonable. Um, yeah. Now, I understand that you have uh, discovered that the forecast for promotional activities and new product introductions are we're consistently overly optimistic. Why is that, do you think? I think it's a, a mix of things. No one wants to introduce a product that's not going to do well. Frequently, funding for the launch is tied to expected volume. So there's, there's a, some incentive conflict there. Um, you know, I will note top performers... 2% bias, average 16%. So to me, it's more kind of a moratorium on your SNOP or IBP process than it is anything, you know, related to your system. It's really mostly about governance. Yeah, but you do suggest the incentive thing is important because in some cases, I guess, the manufacturing side is incentivized to uh, to maximize their 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 production capacity where on the sales side, the sales is incentivized to make their quarters and the like, and, and maybe they're not paying full attention to what the real uh, real need or real demand for that potential product is. Absolutely. I think incentive conflict is the elephant in the room for demand planning, particularly around bias. Um, coming out of the study, every single company is over-forecasting. For all of our talk... For all of our talk about aligning the supply chain and cutting, uh, blowing up the silos and the like, it sounds like we still have a long way to go in that regard. I think there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Let's talk about the, uh, one of the most difficult things, and as you point out, the slowest moving items. You say there were more errors among those, a two-thirds more error than top sellers. What is the reason for that? Um, it's a mix of things. I think some of those tend to be new items that haven't done well. Um, they don't get the kind of attention that a demand planner can give to your top items. Um, so there's just, there's just a lot more volatility. Some of them are account specific. Um, 
really a host of reasons, but in in some sense, the underlying problem is low volume is going to mean volatility. Yeah, and I guess are there any creative new theories out there and new strategies for dealing with slow moving items that would improve that uh, that reduce would reduce that error? Yeah, I mean demand demand sensing, which is really looking at current signals in your supply chain as opposed to sort of historical averages, or I say as well as historical averages, um, is something that you know that, that we've obviously uh, been part of, as well as a number of other companies are now working on solutions. Um, and there, you you are able to get pretty dramatic reductions, typically on the order of forty percent, um, by really paying more attention. More granular data. What's going on? What's you know? What's your downstream, your channel inventories, point of sale data? Using all of those demand signals, um, you you can typically tune the forecasts quite a bit. Yeah, I want to talk to you more about demand sensing, but I just want to get back to promotional and and uh, new products uh, just a little bit more. Um, as I understand it, you have said that there is no evidence to support that innovation and promotional activities played an important role in driving sales and. I see that statement and I go, what? <laughs> is that really the case? It sounds like a massive failure on somebody's part. Is that true? Well, I, I want to be clear. Not not sales of the particular item. Clearly a promotion helps that. Overall growth. Like what we see in the study, items up 23%, volume up 3%. Mm-hmm. And so there's really average sales per item down 17%. So, you know, putting something on special will obviously move it, but the idea that innovation is really expanding, um, you know, people's expanding the market or really taking share away from people, uh, not seeing it so much. That message doesn't seem to have gotten through. I should say that is North America, not Asia. Okay, but the message doesn't seem to have gotten through to a lot of retailers who seem to be putting a lot of their a lot of stock in in innovation. I mean, the, hence the skew proliferation madness and the new products and seasonal stuff. And yet, maybe all of that is I wouldn't say for not, but not quite as uh, promising or successful as they would like to think. Well. You know, I always say marketing is an entire department paid to make sure history doesn't repeat, right? So, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, we're, we're just not we're not seeing it. Okay. You know? So tell me a little bit more about demand sensing. How old is the concept, or at least labeled in that way? Uh, labeled in that way, I would say 2006. Laura Soseri was at AMR at that point. We introduced the product in 2002, then called high-definition demand, briefly called real-time forecasting, and now demand sensing. Mm -hmm. Depending, of course, I'm sure, on access to real-time or at least near-real-time point-of-purchase or point-of-sale data, right? Um, it's, uh, It's mixed. It's both different mathematics than traditional demand planning, as well as potentially the downstream data. So most of our customers are actually running without downstream data, although those who are find a benefit there as well. Um, so in other words, when you say demand sensing, it's not just sensing actual numbers of sales at the cash register. There's something else you're actually measuring other than other than that? And how? So, yes. 
Yes, sorry, I should be clear. So what are we what are we really doing? We're really improving the manufacturer's forecast. We're publishing a daily forecast every day by day. Um, you know, generally twenty to forty percent less air by by shifting from strictly. You know, demand planning gives you average sales for this time of year. I sell more hot dogs in the summer. I sell more sweaters in the winter. Uh, what demand sensing is looking at is what's happening in your business right now, um, and how does that impact what your customers are likely to do. So, you know, it's sort of a new way of thinking about it, um, but it's been, you know, uh, pretty effective. The the data has been there for some time, though, at least in terms of point of sale going all the way back to Retail Link launched by Walmart in, what, the 1990s? And I just wonder, you know, what took so long for that to kind of mature into the concept we know as demand sensing today? What was the delay? Um, So I I think people uh, initially started, you know, really collecting the data and analyzing it by hand and... You know, if you have a thousand items in three thousand Walmart stores, that's three million pieces of data a day. There's a limit to what people can do, so it's definitely benefited from Moore's law. Um, but you need a sort of structured, automated approach to crunch all these numbers every night, and that's you know that's kind of what demand sensing has brought in. So to be able to get through that, understand the implications, you know, and and really drive your supply chain more efficiently. Now, of course, having just merely having the numbers is of no value if your organization cannot act on them. And are you actually saying in terms of this constantly on a daily basis revising the forecast that the companies are able to, like, take that signal and move it all the way up the supply chain to the point where manufacturing is flexible and agile enough, distribution is agile enough, inventory control is agile enough to actually make use of those numbers on a daily basis? Well, I'm not saying planning frequency has to change, but but plans, they're all really driven on based on projected inventory. And so whenever I go to plan something, if I schedule another week's worth of production or another day's worth, the quality of that schedule depends entirely on my ability to project my inventory accurately. So the reason we're doing everything daily is to give everyone the most current, the most accurate picture of what demand is so then the chance that you come up with a good schedule the first time around or send the right amount of inventory as a, you know whenever you send it is is maximized i will say shortening your lead times definitely very complementary benefit in terms of becoming demand driven better demand signal shorter lead times but it, it's not required to change planning frequency it's really about making the right decision or a better decision the first time what is forecast value added, and how does it fit into the demand sensing picture? So as part of the benchmark, we do a, a naive forecast. We just generate a, a seasonally adjusted moving average, and then we compare that accuracy to the accuracy, actually, of what's coming out of the demand planning system and say, you know, the difference between those two is really the value added by the demand planning group. And that varies pretty widely with the, the bench, the best people providing roughly double the value, uh, you know, compared to the overall average. Tell me how this works in the real world. Give me an example of, say, a, a leading, uh, cutting-edge CPG company and how it utilizes demand sensing and all we've been talking about to really cut forecasting error and really match supply with demand. 
kind of a mini case study. Yeah. So from a from a, a best in class standpoint, organizationally, process wise, you're going to have centralized demand planning group. It's going to be part of supply chain, and this is all really about um, skill sets and, and avoiding the incentive conflict. So if you have a demand planning center focused on accuracy, insulated from sales and marketing incentive conflicts, um, that's that's great start, right? So you, you can check that by looking at your bias. You can check that by looking at your error, but it's really mostly about bias from a process standpoint. You know, from there, uh, most of our customers run uh, a commercial demand planning system and then demand sensing sort of on top of that in the, you know, over the next six weeks. Um, of course, you would want to be collecting retailer data from your customers. People get about 70% coverage in North America, typically. Um, and then using that to, to refine your forecast. Your forecast as published is your, you know, your best estimate of what's going to happen, but then demand sensing monitors your business every day and says, is it coming in as I expected, higher, lower, slower, faster? What about channel inventories? What about point-of-sale data? Um, typically providing much greater accuracy in the near term and then driving that back through deployment and manufacturing where, again, you're focused on cutting your lead times as much as you can as, um, and acting as late as possible on the most accurate demand. Mm-hmm. And this so-called cutting-edge company, the CPG company, I'm sure has a really solid collaboration with the re- with the downstream retailer, right? I mean, is, there, is that pretty much uh, there already, or is there more work to be done in the terms of actual sharing of information, responding to information, collaborating on, on forecasts and the like? I think... Um, historically, collaboration is, is actually, as a process only, has been a bit overrated. I mean, I went through the CP4 craze in the late 90s, and when you start looking at, you know, a retailer carrying maybe a few hundred thousand items, a manufacturer with thousands of items, it, it, the scale of the problem becomes unmanageable pretty rapidly. So we look at the data sharing as a much more effective means of collaboration because then you can use computers to look for exceptions, to manage the data, and focus on you know specific events. We're going to do the promotion. We don't need to talk about forecasts for a thousand different items. Mm-hmm. Uh, retailers generally not staffed to spend a lot of time with the manufacturers. Yeah. You were referring to the Collaborative Planning, Forecasting, and Replenishment Initiative from some years back, which I think Walmart also was instrumental in one of one of the early partners in that. So, uh, if it's the case that in the past forecast error has been as much as fifty percent uh, in a demand sensing environment in the new age of forecasting and responding, what if we assume that the forecast will always be wrong to some extent? What is forecast error now? Uh, so I would say on, on average, it's about 40% less than that in a, in a relative sense, so around 30%. Mm-hmm. Um, across the, the benchmark, we're getting a 38% reduction in error. Is it realistic um, to hope that we could bring it down even more, or is that just what we have to live with in the retailing world? I think uh, there is certainly the potential to go further with a broader set of retailer data. Um where I actually see things going, I, I think manufacturers are really leaning forward to try to exert a little more control over the retailer supply chain to get a little more involved in it. People have focused on on-shelf availability. 
as you see, I, I'm expecting kind of a, a rebirth of VMI with manufacturers taking more control over that rather than just waiting for orders, really more control over providing service, managing inventory for the retailers. I think that will be a huge help in terms of executing um, more effectively, improving service, lowering inventory. So really a more collaborative supply chain and same back through suppliers. You see a lot of people trying to get their suppliers connected via systems now, mm. not just, you know, emailing them a spreadsheet. Yeah. VMI vendor managed inventory. So looking forward, Rob, what do you think is the single biggest challenge or the biggest gap that needs to be addressed as we go forward uh, in this whole area of forecasting and demand planning, demand sensing? It's certainly effective use of your customer's data. I mean, getting the data in a timely fashion, granular enough, and then making use of it in a structured way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the, the closest we're going to get to a revolution is, is really having that connection. Great. Well, I guess we can only hope that the future will bring us even further improvements. But uh, in the meantime, uh, Rob Byrne, thank you so much for speaking with us. We really appreciate it. Bob, thanks very much for having me. Well, that's our show for today. I've been speaking with Rob Byrne of Terra Technology. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch over 1,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. By the way, Happy New Year. See you next time.